Welcome to the 34 Welcome to Make Matriarchy Great Again. We are disrupting history, and we are here with the one, the only Dawn, Sam Alden. <laughs> I'm, I'm making the, the queen wave again. You get yep. to do yep. that, yeah. Indeed, yes. Welcome, welcome to How our little short take. How are you? Yeah. I'm good. I'm ready good. for our short take because it is an interesting, a really fun short take because it's a character not many people may know, but they should. Mm-hmm. And why don't you tell us about her? Well, we mentioned her briefly in some of the other podcasts, but um, but she just has such a, a wonderful, spectacular story. And in many ways, it is so... Um, it is such a perfect representation of many of the principles that we've been talking about in these podcasts about, you know, women leading their countries into war and the attitude that women have toward, um, you know, large scale conflict like this and, um, and what kind of violence is acceptable and that kind of thing. So I like the way you put that, the principles we talked about. Can you mention maybe a couple of those? Well, we talked about how um, warrior queens, to borrow the phrase from Antonia Fraser's book, about how um, when a queen rules a country, it is uh, she will have a tendency to hold off on armed conflict as long as she possibly can, that she will try everything else. She'll try diplomacy, she'll try pacification, she'll try... Um, uh, uh, you know, uh, negotiation, all of that sort of thing. But if uh, armed conflict absolutely cannot be avoided, then when she enters it, she does so with the intention of wiping her opponent off the face of the earth. Um, there you have it. It's- yeah. <laughs> so it's not about ego. It's not about ambition it's about survival i think what's good what's interesting about that is there is the stereotype of the bellicose out of control wildly hysterical female leader that's what you hear from people about why they won't vote for that woman Mm -hmm. because what that woman will do and i'm saying it that way because typically those people who say that always say i would vote for a woman I have no but problem not, with women leading, yeah. but not that, that woman. And strange how every woman that is presented as a potential leader is is somehow always that woman. Absolutely. Know? It's interesting. Yeah. They, usually you'll see in polls people like that woman until that woman starts to run for office, and right. particularly when she leads. Yes. Yes. Yep. We have a lot of issues in this country with... Uh, with women leaders and hopefully some of the episodes in this podcast will, will perhaps hopefully fingers crossed 
give people a little something to think about to maybe reconsider that position. So the, there's the idea that women will only go to war when they have no other choice. When they have no history. other choice, exactly. It's and not. They, will... uh, they are not guided by their emotions. They are guided by their very considered options, and um, and will only fight when backed against the wall, and it's a matter of survival. And so it interestingly addresses two stereotypes. One, the fact that they are out of control, and two, the fact that they would be too meek to fight properly. Right, yeah, yeah. What are some of the other, what's maybe I think you were going to mention one of the other principles that we've noticed about women leaders. I know it's the idea that they will fight only when they need to, and they will fight as strongly as they need to do. Mm-hmm. Um, have we mentioned anything else that the other the other thing sort of came up in the defending the home fronts um, podcast that we did, and that is that it is if women have to fight, the one way that it is acceptable for women to fight is if they're defending their loved ones or their home, right. a sort of uh, mama bear type of um, of uh, paradigm. Exactly. So, you know, we, we hear about, you know, women getting so strong that they lift cars off of their child who is trapped <laughs> underneath. And, and that's really the only way that we want women to be strong, right? We wouldn't, we wouldn't be interested in a she-hulk who went around lifting cars on a regular basis. But That if, might scare the fellows. And who would exactly. she date, Dawn? Who right. Would she date? Well, only the Hulk, obviously, because right. she has to date someone who's even stronger than she is to maintain exactly. the balance. Yeah. And and even he might be like, look, she's a little too close. <laughs> <in strength." laughs> so. But, um, but yeah, the idea of a woman um, defending her family, um, it's acceptable for a woman to fight. And in fact, that was in Tamiris's case, um, that was the straw that broke the camel's back when her son was captured. Um, so let's let's re let's yeah. So let's her. get into it. So, so Tamiris, her name and everything. Sorry, go ahead. Tamiris was the queen of the Masagate, and um, she was queen because her husband died. Right. So originally, she and her husband were um, were ruling together. And uh, there is no mention in the records I read of her husband's name in a sort of ironic, you know, reversal of the usual. Um, But uh, yes, so Tamiris um, took over and uh, she was the queen of the Masagate who were considered a nomadic people, although they did have a territory. Um, Let's say a l- little bit about them first and then Tamaris' story because the we were talking about this earlier. The Tamatai, uh, sorry, the Masagatai are interesting in that they are one of a few tribes in their region with the very similar traits. Yes. All thought to be nomadic and warlike, uh, robust, big build peoples, both men and women. And I find interesting, they're compared to the Scythians, much like another tribe called the Isidones, much like a tribe called the Hephthalites or White Huns, as they were called. Mm-hmm. And 
each of these tribes also has some matriarchal traces about them, which are fascinating, amusing, however you want to look at it. They were known to have been polyandrous in many cases, meaning one wife, many husbands. So there's definitely a matriarchal or matrilineal trace somewhere through there and known also always for their warlike women. Yes, and and similar to the Bedouins and uh, Zenobia, who we all also talked about in one of our um, in one of our podcasts, this idea that uh, the nomadic peoples trained both men and women as warriors because it was mm-hmm. not in any way a cushy life. You know, they were always on the go. Um, they traveled light, and any of them had to be ready at any moment to um, either defend, uh, you know, their camp if it was being attacked or go out after some travelers in their land who, you know, were trespassing or were taking their resources or something like that. So it was um, it was a very egalitarian society. Yeah, steppe tribes, and I believe that's pointed out in the Amazon's book by Adrian Mayer, steppe tribes... And the, like you say, these nomadic tribes tend to be egalitarian. Men and women have to hunt together, fight together, um, you know, raise children together. They have to share yeah. all of these duties. Yes, so absolutely. These, in these tribes, you tend to see more women as fighters and probably when they encounter much more patriarchal or settled tribes, mm-hmm. they appear just outlandish and dangerous in certain cases. So. Yeah. Yeah. And let's and let's balance that out, too. So the women are, you know, uh, equally taught to to uh, serve as warriors for the tribe. But one would imagine that if children are raised in common, that also means that the men are equally skilled at the matern- the more, quote unquote, maternal parts of life, which is raising Absolutely. the children, feeding them. Um, you know, sewing their clothing when it when uh, it tears or needs replacing. You know, everyone learned every skill. Yeah, and if if possibly there is that polyandrous or matriarchal marriage pattern, then often that means children are raised in common. Right. So yes. you have a lot of people helping out with that with all of the children. So mm-hmm. it's an interesting. I, it's a pattern that we certainly will have to explore and look into as we try to unfold some of the mysteries of this region. Yes. One of the things that um, Vicki Noble has written about is about some of these matriarchal groupings and how they may have traveled further from the Black Sea region where they and, and Eastern Europe where they may have arisen to parts of Central Asia as well. So it's mm-hmm. interesting to see that unity and continuum, but the way to trace that is to look to the archaeological and historical record, the cultural record, the anthropological ref- record about them to see yeah. if that's there. Yeah. Yeah. And as Vicki pointed out, the new element is also the genetic record. Right. That's a very big deal. I've actually yeah. looked at a lot of that, and I think I'll put down a note that we should have a podcast that talks about that. I'd like to bring someone on specifically trained in that area. Yeah, that would be wonderful. There are some interesting things that I've uncovered about the genetics of these tribes and would love to ask if the pattern that I see there makes sense from the standpoint of the scholarship. 
right. Yeah. yeah. You know, are they traced back? Because they could be very well traced back, as Vicky says, to that Eastern Europe, Black Sea region where the old Europe matriarchy existed. Yeah, the Anatolian farmers and how they right. spread so widely across old Europe. And then also they could have been moving east at the same time. Exactly. And then we're moving east into headlong collision with the Yamnaya, who were the patriarchal tribe right. that smashed them. So you get these groupings, these tribes like Tomeris' tribe, the Masagatai, the yeah. Isidonis, etc. So tell us more about Tomeris. So, yes, yeah, so a wonderful Tomeris or Tomeris. Um, she was. Potato, I say potato. Exactly. Uh, so uh, Tamiris was um, the ruler after her husband's death. And uh, because she was a widow, uh, her the first approach, well, Cyrus the Great, let's talk a little bit about Cyrus the Great. Um, uh-huh. he, was, he was determined to amass the largest empire he possibly could. So he was very aggressive in terms of expanding his empire. And where, uh, for the audience, for the listener, where was Cyrus from? What empire did he He was the founder of the Persian Empire. He's considered the founder of the Persian Empire. And he conquered Assyria as well. So Mm -hmm. he was in that, he was sort of east of where Tomyris would have been. And perhaps a little north as well, if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah, he had a vast empire. And I think also, to be fair to old Cyrus, uh, one of the interesting things about his empire, you know, history is written written by the victors or written by the region you're in. We know the Persian Empire through the eyes of the Greeks. The Greeks were trying to ward off the Persians from, uh, you know, consuming their particular region. Right. But one thing about Cyrus that was interesting is that it was a very egalitarian empire. It was a very... It was an empire that extended sort of equal rights to all of its inhabitants. So on the one hand, you have this very egalitarian sensibility uh, and egalitarianism of worship, things of that sort. Mm-hmm. But of course, he's a he's an empire expander. He's from a patriarchal construct. And then he meets your friend and ours. Tomyris, indeed. So he, he has been eyeing her territory. And so the first offer that he makes, the first sort of overture that he makes um, to take over her territories was couched in an offer of marriage. Uh, He figured, you know, if he can marry the queen, then he inherits her kingdom and he doesn't even have to um, raise a single soldier. So Tamiris, however, was was savvy enough to know that this is exactly what was going on. And she declined his offer of marriage, saying that the queen was well aware that he was not wooing her, but rather her dominion. Mm -hmm. So Tamiris urges Cyrus to leave the Masagate in peace. You know, don't 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 go there, Cyrus is what she says. But of course, you know, he's determined. So he starts to build bridges across the river Araxes. Now, Araxes is the Greek name of the river. Um, It is currently, I believe, known as the Aras River, A-R-A-S. And it runs sort of in the area between the Caspian Sea and the Black Sea. So in order to mount... Uh, an attack to 
get his forces across um, the river more quickly and easily, he started to, you know, just discreetly build some bridges across that river. And just to say, too, we, as we like to point out, we're looking for these matriarchies. There is a lot of connection to the Black Sea region. And interestingly, it sounds like this Masagatai tribe has a connection or at least is situated near that region where we see a lot of these really empowered, potentially matriarchal civilizations. Yes, absolutely. Well, Tamiris was uh, was not uh, amused at his latest little effort. And she, again, sent a message to him, urging him to stop what he's doing. And she asked him, rule your own people and try to bear the sight of me ruling mine. A very reasonable plea. So once again, trying to avoid... Indeed, indeed, indeed. Trying to keep the peace, trying to, you know, be diplomatic and urge him not to persist in uh, trying to take over her kingdom. But Cyrus was too, uh, was too ambitious. And so... Tamara suggested that um, that they meet, that they have a, a meeting to sort of discuss the situation. So again, trying diplomacy. Mm-hmm. And she gave him two offers. She said, either the Masagate would retreat three days march from the river and allow Cyrus to cross it in peace with his delegation and then come to meet them. Or Cyrus would retreat three days from his side of the river and the Masagate would cross the river to meet them. So he met with his officers and apparently all of his, uh, his advisors thought this was a great idea. However, one of his advisors, who is identified um, by Antonia Fraser's book, um, as Croesus, the Lydian, um, sort of chose to shame Cyrus instead and said it would be an intolerable disgrace for the great Cyrus, son of Cambyses, to give ground before a woman. So Croesus advocates crossing the river and meeting on the Masagate side. Just as a, uh, just to interject one thing, Croesus, and this is something that is from ancient history slash myth, Croesus was the king of Lydia who was then overtaken by Cyrus right. the Great. So, right. So um, he's already I, a conquered people at that point. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it says a little bit about Cyrus's egalitarianism that he his sort of court of advisors included these rulers of lands he had captured. Right. So Croesus also suggests a little bit of um, fast and loose strategy, uh, which involves a banquet. So the Persians cross the river and they throw a banquet and they 
include quite a bit of very powerful wine at this banquet. Now, Tomyris had not gone in person to the banquet. She had sent her son, Sparga Pisces, as her representative because, you know, he was a prince of the land and presumably was, you know, in on councils and and was leading part of her army and all that right. sort of thing. Right. So she sends her son, Sparga Pisces, as her ambassador to this banquet. And Sparga Pisces gets a little drunk. And then the uh, Cyrus's forces, the Persians, they slaughter a lot of the uh, Masagate visitors at the banquet, and they take Sparga Pisces prisoner. So when the message comes back to Tamiris from Cyrus saying, we have your son, and now, now let's negotiate you giving me your kingdom, she continues, she sends him a back word that says, Glutton as you are for blood, you have no cause to be proud of this day's work, which has no smack of soldierly courage. Give me back my son and get out of my country with your forces intact and be content with your triumph over a third part of the Masagate. If you refuse, I swear by the sun, our master, to give you more blood than you can drink for all your gluttony. Now that is a speech. That is a throwing down of the gauntlet. Indeed. She has, she has met her, she has reached her line and she has thrown him down an ultimatum. In other words, you can keep that territory that you gained by that three days march into my territory. You can keep that. But you must advance no further and you must give me back my son, who was taken completely dishonorably. I mean, getting him drunk and then capturing him, who was sent as an ambassador, is, is you know, against the rules of war and very dishonorable. And again, interestingly, fits into the narrative of until you've pushed her, she's yes. trying to find a way out. Yes. And Cyrus would have been well served by taking these terms, but he did not. So having her final line crossed and in defense of her son's life, again, you know, sort of the mama bear paradigm here, she amasses her troops and she swept down on the Persians with the entire might of her forces. So she was not fooling around here. Having decided to go to war, as we said, she has determined that she will end the threat. And because Cyrus has demonstrated that he will not stop trying as long as he's alive, her path is clear. Mm -hmm. She has to completely neutralize Cyrus and his armies. And that is what she did. Herodotus, who talks about, um, you know, who is one of the, the famous chroniclers of the ancient times, he says that this is the 
bloodiest battle that the ancient world had ever witnessed. And that there are, there are um, stories that when the battle was over, you had to wade through about six inches of blood that completely covered the battlefield. Good now, heavens. the reports differ. Some people say that, that um, Cyrus killed Tamiris' son, Sparta Pisces. Others say that the shame of being captured in such an ignoble way, Sparga Pisces committed suicide while he was in the in captivity, um, uh, in the captivity of Cyrus and his forces. Either way, Sparga Pisces is dead, and at the end of the battle, when Tamiris finds out that her son is dead and that she cannot save him, she commands that her that the body of Cyrus the Great be found and brought to her. And it is, and she has a um, sort of a what is called a bladder, which is like a bowl made out of leather, so it's flexible but watertight. Mm-hmm. And she scoops up the bla- the the blood on the battlefield until it fills the bladder. She cuts off Cyrus's head and she takes his head and she stuffs it into the bladder full of blood and says, though I have conquered you and live, yet you have ruined me by treacherously taking my son. See now, I fulfill my threat. You have your fill of blood. And I, I wanted to let that moment just yes, stand, yes. That, is, that moment deserves its own it time. Des- to it deserves a breath, it. indeed. And there were no Persians left alive at the end of this battle. They didn't even allow a messenger to escape back to Persian territory to tell the tale of what happened. And because of this, for several years... No one knew what happened to Cyrus. He just disappeared. Him and all his armies just disappeared until finally someone who had known the tale of the battle began to spread the word about what had happened. And maybe it's because of this or maybe it's because Cyrus the Great was beaten by a woman. But in accounts of Cyrus the Great's reign, where they talk about all of the territory that he captured and all of the wonderful things that he did. Right. No one mentions how it was that he died. I think that's interesting. I noted that too. Yeah. I, I, what do you think? I think it's because it was, he was defeated by a woman. Indeed. Indeed. Yeah. Yeah. It's easier to say he was simply killed in battle without going into not only the fact that he was killed by a woman, but the fact that he acted so dishonorably in the process of trying to capture her territory that his death essentially became inevitable at her hands. Right. I mean, it's an interesting notion because we know from contemporary accounts, I think it's ISIS, that the idea that they don't want to be killed by a woman, is that correct? I believe it's the ISIS. Yes, yeah, yeah, the the, uh, Daesh, as they're called in their region, the Daesh fighters don't want to be killed by a woman 
because um, then they won't receive their their great martyr's reward after death. And this is also why the Kurdish forces were so effective fighting Daesh, because the Kurdish forces are integrated men and women. The Kurds... The mm-hmm. Kurds women, the, the Kurdish women are incredible fighters. And that's an episode for another time as well. It is indeed. And is also this region. It's the same region that we're yes. dealing with. Yes. Interestingly enough, we're dealing with the same region. So I think there is that element because we're not talking about a religious thing now. We're talking more about a cultural thing or historical thing. I'm sure it'd be the same in other parts of the world that, you know, the idea of just a woman defeating you mm-hmm. is is not something that many male, particularly patriarchal or macho, whatever phrase you want to use, fighters would like themselves, like to be known, like it to be known had happened to one of their heroes, let's say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. What do you think and, of the you know, idea? I mean, Sorry, it, it, no, it goes right back to our joking at the beginning about the She-Hulk. It's like the Hulk can't be killed by the She-Hulk. Dear God, no. You know, no warrior would want to be killed by the She-Hulk. They'd want to be killed by the Hulk. They want to be killed by, in order to have a quote-unquote honorable death, you know, they have to be killed by someone stronger, smarter, faster, tougher, you know, that kind of thing. Whereas if you're, you know, in a patriarchal society, yeah, and if you're in a patriarchal society and you tell this tale, then... You can't tell the tale of being killed by a woman and still have an honorable death. We also, in addition to the Kurds, which I'm writing down, there are some sagas from that region. And I want to make sure I get the names right. I think it's the Nart sagas, which are told with the female warrior being sort of the hero of the tale. So I think those would be really interesting for us to really explore. So... Let's put that down on the chart, too, in addition to the Kurds. Yeah. And there are, you know, there are other tales of queens in that region. I mean, Semiramis or Semiramis, depending on how you pronounce it, was from that region, Semuramat. She was also from that region. And she um, was, you know, conquered more territory than Alexander the Great did. And she also created one of the seven wonders of the world, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. As did the Amazons with the Temple of Artemis. With the Temple of Artemis. There so you go. Two also, of the seven. Yeah. Uh, Zarina, who was queen of a Scythian tribe, conquered Medea, Media in northwestern Iran. And she was so successful and renowned um, that uh, her name, Zarina, actually gave rise to the term Tsar as a ruler. I did not know that. That is amazing. That's an amazing bit of information. Indeed, yeah. There is another story, too, and it's popping up just because we're thinking about these things. I will look it up. There was a Siberian warrior queen that took on Genghis or Genghis Khan, and she was kind of a Boudicca type. So I'm going to track that down for nice, us nice. as well. It's a story I've never heard anywhere other than Jack Weatherford's book about Genghis Khan. So I was going to ask you, do you think that this, the pattern that we've noted, where women are diplomatic, where they try to avoid the fight, may in fact incite a very patriarchal adversary to be even bolder? Oh, indeed. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I mean, 
it's kind of uh, because I'm a Trek nerd. I'm going to throw in a Star Trek reference here. Okay. Um, in the latest uh, Star Trek series, Discovery, uh, the um, they talk about why the Klingons do not attack the Vulcans, and it's because the first, the second time, the the first time the Klingons encountered the Vulcans, the Vulcans tried diplomacy and tried to establish peaceful relations. The Klingons saw them as a weak enemy and instantly destroyed them. So the second time the Vulcans encountered the Klingons, as soon as they saw them, they fired on them and destroyed the ship. And the Klingons respected that, and from that point on, left them alone. As, so a, as a fellow Trekkie, I, I appreciate <laughs> that reference. Indeed. And it shows Vulcan logic. So There you go. Exactly. Exactly. The Vulcans, although they are a peaceful people assessed the situation, realized that the only way to have peace with the Klingons was to make to establish themselves as even more aggressive than the Klingons and therefore gain their respect. So when we talk about patriarchal culture coming up against matriarchal culture, it's entirely possible that that same sort of philosophy is at play, that a patriarchal culture who considers diplomacy a last-ditch effort when you are losing or a type of weakness would interpret a matriarchal culture's attempts to establish peaceful relations as sort of waving a red flag in front of a bull. Mm -hmm. that That they are easy prey and ripe for the taking. We will explore that more as we look through some further of our warrior queens and our great warrior women of history. I think on that note, this would be a good place to stop and go to uh, our next story when we get to it on the next episode. So let's thank our great queen Tamiris or Tamiris mm-hmm. uh, of the Masagetai or Masagate and tomato, tomato, no. Uh, but <laughs> let's, let's appreciate this great story of this warrior queen that has not been told and that we will probably play with in a different format very soon. Indeed. So I want to thank Dawn Sam Alden. And I thank you. And uh, we will all, both of us, will see you next time, or hear you next time, rather. <laughs> Good night. See ya. Blessed be.